Please take a seat. And if you could get a Bible, that would really help you. If you haven't got a Bible, please just put your hand up and Horace will zoom along the aisles and get one for you. Uh, We're going to turn to Colossians chapter 3, which if you've got one of these church Bibles is on page 1184. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start to read at verse 12, we're going to end up at verse 17, we are, 17, 12 to 17. It just felt too short when I looked at it in this Bible. Okay, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're going to pray together and then Ben is going to come and explain that passage to us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you may speak to us by your word, through your spirit, by your servant Ben now. Open our eyes to see our sin. May we see it like the burden Pilgrim felt. May it lead us to the cross where it led Pilgrim. Help us to understand how you work in us as your chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Help us to know how to clothe ourselves appropriately for the people you've made us to be. Please rule in our hearts that we may all do all in the name of Christ giving thanks to the Father, through him we pray. Amen. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to see you again. I'm just going to get straight into it. So um, I I think on the notice sheet, the the sermon tonight was called um, Christ-Centered Community. Scrap that name. The name, that's been used too many times. What I'm going to... The most obvious name for a passage tonight is, is Clothed in Christ. So that's what my, my sermon, that's the new title for my sermon. Did you get that up there? The new title for my sermon is Clothed in Christ. Brilliant. Fantastic. And we're just going to start straight into there. Now, how many of you have read the books, The Lion, the, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and The Chronicles of Narnia? Bunch of you, loads of you. If, how many of you see the films? Probably a few more. Yep. There's this wonderful image in The Chronicles of Narnia, particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it, but it stems right through all the books. And this is the theme of being a king or queen of Narnia. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which isn't the first book in in chronology, but it's the first book that was written, there's this wonderful scene where the four children from East Finchley are crowned as kings and queens of Narnia. And let me just read to you a little bit from their coronation. 
To the glistening eastern sea, I give you Queen Lucy the Valiant. To the great western woods, King Edmund the Just. To the radiant southern sun, Queen Susan the Gentle. And to the clear northern skies, I give you King Peter the Magnificent. Once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia. May your wisdom grace us until the stars rain down from the heavens. Now, can you imagine being one of those children in that throne room as, as Aslan, the, the one who represents Christ in the books, lays a crown on your head and you become a king or queen of Narnia? Now, that would transform you forever, wouldn't it? That moment would, would change you. But, but, but the reality is, for those children, um, staying in Narnia wasn't the rest of their life. They went back through the wardrobe and came back into to, 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 to our world to face a world that was, 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 being, was right in the middle of war and they faced difficult lives. And in the midst of that, they faced it as ordinary children, not dressed in all the finery of Narnia, not looking like kings and queens, but looking like the sorts of people that be, should be seen and not heard. So why go to Narnia in the first place? Well, one of the main things in Narnia is that, that Aslan didn't bring the children to Narnia so that, um, so that they would be in Narnia. Aslan brought the children to Narnia so that they could live better here. You see, see how it was supposed to work was as they come back to, to face all the challenges of this world, even though they look like normal, everyday, mere children that should be seen and not heard, um, and although they can't clothe themselves with all the fine clothes and garments and crowns of the, the, the kings and queens of Narnia should be wearing, they were able to clothe themselves in the virtues of Narnia. They were able, as they faced the challenges of the world, to, to, to clothe themselves with loyalty, trustworthiness, bravery, sacrifice, justice, true generosity. Because even if nobody else can see who they are, they know who they are, and more importantly than that, Aslan knows who they are. The great king himself has called, nobody can take it away. Once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. And that's the great push in the story. And, it, and you see as you carry on reading that in this world, their lives did change. They were better in this world because they knew who they were in Narnia. And this is C.S. Lewis using imagery in this children's book, which is so powerful, which is basically Christian imagery taken straight from the Bible. And it's taken from the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. It's this kind of image. Let me read to you um, the first few verses of Colossians chapter 3, chapter 3 that we were looking at last week. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul is saying, look, Christian, believer, look at who you really are in Jesus. Look at what it means to be united with Christ. You are seated with the king of the universe in the heavenly realms. You have been crowned with Jesus, in Jesus, a king or queen of this new creation, of this new order where Christ is seated. That is your true identity. And the great emphasis of this chapter is 
the driving force of the Christian life, the thing that should shape the way Christians live, is knowing who we truly are in Christ. And actually, that is the opposite way than we usually develop ourselves and change ourselves. See, normally the way it works is you and I have an image about what we want to be, who we want to be, what we want to be like. So, for example, um, I want to be thin and fit. So I start to run, not because I am thin and fit, but because I see a better me that I want to be, and I get out there by jogging stuff in the morning. And Andy Wyatt has a good laugh at me when he sees me when he sees me running down the road, and so does Evan. He's had a bit of a laugh at the. You know, but but the point is, they, I do that because I see the me that I want to be, and I, and I and I go after that. Maybe those, and it's the opposite. Those who want to lose weight, why do they want? To, how? What's the motivation that they normally do? They say, "Well, I'm not that now, but I can see the person that I could be if I just try hard enough." And and they strive towards that. And another thing, I mean, how do we train children in the way that they should grow? What is the most common thing we say to children when they're behaving badly and the, or they're being rude? We say, "Do you want to be one of those kind of people? Is that the kind of person you want to be when you grow up?" A miserable meanie. And we say, do you want to be an astronaut? Well, what you've got to do if you want to be an astronaut is you've got to study really hard and eat your veg. Not that that's got to do anything, but it's always great to chuck eat your veg in there, isn't it? And we say, look, have this vision for who you could be and then strive after it. But you know what? That, that is not how the gospel works. You see, that, that is the way the world works. It's like everything is a self-improvement project. Be the you you could be. Strive for that. But that isn't the way the gospel works. And the truth is, if, if that's our motivation, who, the me who I could be, then if I get there, I look down on everybody else who hasn't got there yet. And I become proud. And if I don't get there, I'm crushed. Because I just can't be that person. You know, it, it's a terrible weight to carry. And that's the way the world works. That's how we naturally work. But that isn't how the gospel works. The gospel works differently. The gospel says, be who Christ has made you. Be who you truly are. In Colossians chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, a few weeks ago we looked at this. There's this amazing verse that describes what it means to be a Christian. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We were over here in the dominion of darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Right at the heart of the Christian message is not a self-improvement project. The Christian message ultimately is about a change of status, a change of identity, and Paul in this chapter is calling believers, he's calling the Colossians, and he's calling you and I through them to live not according to who we could be if we try hard enough, but live according to who we are in Christ. That's, that's the call of the gospel. Jesus has changed your status. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king of the universe. Live as if you believe that. Believe it and live it. That's the pull and the call of the gospel. And it's the opposite message to what the world offers. Well, last week, um, Paul stressed um, in a few verses earlier from our passage, he said, put to death, therefore, what belongs to earthly nature. So literally go to war with sinful desires and things in our lives that we know we shouldn't be. Go to war with them. And in today's passage, we look at what we do next. And it says that we would clothe ourselves, that we would put on something. So put to death and put on. 
And we're going to look at that in three headings, three simple headings this evening. And they are, we need to know we are loved in Christ. We need to be clothed by Christ. And we need to be ruled by Christ. We need to, be, we need to know we are loved by Christ, clothed by Christ, and ruled by Christ. So let me look most briefly at this first one, loved in Christ. Paul continues in this section by going to verse 12, which is where our reading began today, and he reminds the Christians this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Let me just stop there. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. As he starts this section again, as he moves into this next point, he wants to remind them immediately what their position is before God, chosen, holy, dearly loved. He said, if you want to deal with this world, if you want to battle against the sinful nature, and if you want to clothe yourselves with the virtue of heaven, then you must know, above all things, of your position and, your, and how much your heavenly Father loves you. Let's think about those, those three things separately. As God's chosen people, what does that mean? Well, that means that if you are a believer here today, if you've put your trust in Christ, God has chosen you to be part of his forever family. He has chosen you for that purpose. That means before you were even born, billions of years ago, he knew you, and your name was in his heart. And he penned your name in the book of life, the family album. He put it there billions of years ago, before time even began, when there was nothing else but the triune God he knew you, and he chose you. You can have no more security or wonderfulness than this. Or you, well, and so there's that. And then the next thing is chosen to be holy. He knew what you'd be like. He knew what I'd be like. He knew the deeps. He knows the deep sins of your heart. He knows what's going on in your life right now. He knows all that. He knows the mess you're going to make, the way that you can't change yourself, the way I can't change myself. Yet, he knew all that, and he also knew what it would cost him to rescue us. And what did he do, knowing the cost? Well, he sent his son into the world to die brutally on a cross, to die for our sins, to take the punishment for our sins, and to, to be raised to life, so that we could be made holy. Not just so that our sins could be forgiven, but so that we could be made holy, pure, perfect, radiant, and beautiful in him forever. You've been chosen to be holy. And then there's those, the last two words there, and dearly loved. If you haven't figured it out already from those words we just read, we are dearly loved in Christ. How much does God love his son Jesus Christ, do you think? I mean, he's got to love him a lot, right? I mean, Jesus is the perfect son. He's always loved the Father. He's never disobeyed him. He's always lived in a perfect relationship with him. Always loved him at every moment. When Jesus was, was walking on this earth 2,000 years ago, he never sinned. He loved everybody perfectly. He, he, he did everything the Father asked of him. And more, he just, he just loves his Father. And of course, the Father loves the Son. 
How much does he love him? Well, he loves him with a never-stopping, never-ending, never-giving-up, always-forever love. Nothing can break that love relationship between the father and the son. They've always been in a love relationship together. And it's perfect love. And the doctrine, union in Christ, that Nathan was talking about last week, tells us that that love that God has for his son is exactly the same love that you and I have if we trust in Jesus in Christ. God loves you in the same way with exactly the same love that he loves Christ with. Isn't that just amazing? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that secure? Isn't that wonderful? I, I remember just a few, I don't know if it was weeks ago, months ago, but one of Daft's sermons, I can't even remember the sermon, but I do remember this thing that he said. He says, the only way that you and I could lose um, lose God's love is if, the, if, if Jesus could be stripped out of heaven and out of history. And is Jesus going anywhere? No, of course he's not. Jesus is not going anywhere, and neither is God's love for his children. Neither is God's love for you, Christian. It's not going anywhere. It can go nowhere. It is secure. It is forever. It is perfect. God is not a harsh father who will only love you when you get things right. Nor is he a cruel father who as soon as you mess up, he'll cast you out. He is a loving father, a gracious father, a good father. Christian, you are so loved by God, by your heavenly father, that your, your, your relationship with him is secured in eternity past because he chose you. Your relationship, he's so committed to you that he is going to make you beautiful beyond description and it's guaranteed in eternity future. And why? Because it's locked up secure, not in how good you are or what you can do, but it's locked up secure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is how secure your love is in Christ. That is how secure the Heavenly Father's love for believers is. Now maybe you're not a Christian here today and you're kind of listening to these words and you're thinking, you know what, that sounds crazy. How could you ever be loved like that? But maybe on some level you wish you could be loved like that. And you're wondering, as, I, as, as particularly as I was talking about that first one, about being chosen, you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Maybe I'm not chosen. Maybe you, maybe you wondered that. And that's something I used to wonder a long time ago. And then a very wise Christian said to me, and this is true, that, that if you come to Christ, if you want this love, if you're willing to turn away from, from the world and all the things that you know are wrong and to turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness, you will receive his love. You will have been chosen since before the world began. If you come to him, even right now at this very moment, that love is available for you. You can experience and know that secure eternal love. Why not do that today? Why not do it right now? So the first thing Paul wants to remind them of is that they are loved in Christ. Now we move on to how, through the gospel, through this message of Christ, we are clothed by Christ. We are clothed by Christ. Getting dressed in the morning is, is a relatively new thing for me. And by that, I don't mean I'm a naturalist. Okay, by that, I mean that, 
the, the, the idea of thinking about what you might wear in the day is, is, is not something, that, 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 something that, that takes up a lot of my thinking. But it takes up a little bit more of my thinking now than it used to a few years ago. Before I was married to Emily, I only wore one color, beige. Okay? And I, didn't, I just didn't think about what I was wearing at all. And, and Emily has worked really hard on me in the past 13 years that we've been married. And you're looking at me and you're thinking, there's still a long way to go. Okay, bear with, bear with me. I'm getting there. And Emily's got, got a lot of work to do yet. But, but it took me a while to realize that actually what, what we wear does matter. And the way we dress actually says a lot about us. I don't know, some of you might be thinking, no, that's not true. But think about it for a second. I think it is true. You know, why do we get dressed up in a suit when we go for, well, men, okay? Well, maybe women as well. But why do people get dressed up in suits when they go to, to job interviews? Because if you get dressed up in a suit and you go to a job interview and you look smart and you sound respectable just for that half an hour, people think that person's a little bit more employable than that person who couldn't be bothered to put his socks on. I mean, that's the reason, isn't it? And, and it says something about us. We try and project this image. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, you know what? I don't care what people think of me. And you've got this kind of shabby chic look about you. But the reality is, the reason why you do that is because you don't care what people think about you. And you want them to think that, that, that you, he doesn't seem to care what anybody thinks. That's the reason that there, there is always that thing going on. So, so it is important how we dress. It's why I'm not wearing shorts this evening. Okay. Um, it does matter how we dress. But what's far more important is not what we are, as a Christian, not what we are on the outside, but, but who we are on the inside. And, and these, these, these things that we're told to put on here in verse 12 and 13 are, are inside garments that are to shine out of us. These are the virtues of heaven to show the world what Christ is like. So let's have a look at these. Clothe yourselves, put on, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Truth is, I mean, they're beautiful, aren't they? All those, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we want these things to be the, 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 the way, the, 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 the us that we project to the world? Uh, but they're difficult, aren't they? And we struggle to put these on each day. You know, I, Lord, uh, this is the sort of thing that might go on in your mind. You say, Lord, not again. Not that person again. I, you know, I forgave them last week, and now they've done the same thing again. Okay, okay, I'll forgive them this time, but, but you know what? This better be the last one because, you know what? Honestly, they're really winding me up. I don't know how much more of this I can bear. Those are the sorts of things that can go on in my mind. Is that the sort of thing that goes on in yours? But imagine what would happen if Jesus treated us that way. But he doesn't, does he? Jesus is all these things in abundance to us. And Paul hints at the end of verse 13 what our problem really is. And it's this. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. As the Lord forgave you. We are to love others with the same love that we have received from Christ. That's, that's basically the way of summing this up. So our problem is all too often that we forget that we needed compassion. And although we didn't deserve it, Christ shows us compassion. We needed kindness, and although we didn't deserve it, Christ abundantly gives us kindness. 
We were down low in the mud, in the gutter. And although we didn't deserve it, the God of the universe stooped down in humility to love us. You know, God could have, should have squashed us like, a, like bugs. He could have done because of our rebellion against him, because of our wickedness. But instead of doing that, although we didn't deserve it, he has been gentle and kind. We have rebelled against the king of creation. And before we even saw the error of our ways, he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to offer us forgiveness a long time before we ask for it. He has been truly, truly patient because he does these things for us over and over again. Why do I say that? Well, because you may not feel compassionate all the time. You may not feel kind all the time. You may not feel like being gentle. You may not feel like not like bearing with that person again in love. You may not feel like forgiving them again. And you might think, well, you know what, Ben? That is not in my wardrobe. That's not true. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We're told that in the gospel, Christ has given you a wonderful, glorious wardrobe. When he showed you all those virtues, when he, when he gave them to you, he has enabled you to be able to give them to others. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, there's always, there's a person in life group, I'm just making this up, I'm not saying anyone particularly from life, my life group, just to stress that, who always has personal problems. You know, they just can't seem to hold it together. And every week they, they bring them and they just pour them on you. And they, they, for some reason they find you helpful and you just think, I, I just don't have time for this anymore. I've shown them as much compassion as I've got, but I just don't have any more to give. Well, what are we supposed to do in those moments? Well, we we think Christ has showed me compassion. He's forever shown me compassion. He never gives up showing me compassion. There it is in my wardrobe. So I'm going to take it out and I'm going to put it on. And I'm going to have compassion on this person. I'm going to act compassionately because Christ does that for me. Maybe there's that person in, that, in, in that, that thing I was talking about earlier on, that person who constantly needs forgiveness in exactly the same area over and over again. They never get it right. And you're thinking, I'll forgive them one more time, two more times, three more times. And you're thinking, surely I've been good enough. Surely that's all I need to do. Nobody can blame me for, for, for not forgiving them this time, right? Well, then we think, well, no, stop. I, I, I might not feel like I've got forgiveness in the wardrobe, but actually Jesus... That's exactly what I do to Jesus day and day, day after day. I, I commit the same sins. I think the same things. I'm, I'm a slow learner. What do I need to do? I need to take out Christ's forgiveness for me, put it on, and say, I've got that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive this person because Christ forgave me. We have a wardrobe filled with all these things because Christ has done them for us. And the reality is, you know, isn't that list just amazing as, as we were looking at it earlier on? And it's a perfect description of who Jesus is. I mean, that's what this is. We are being, as we put these things on, we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. As we put Him on, over and over again, we are putting on ourselves the, the, the image of Christ and we are living in community in a way that models who he is to the whole world. That is what the church is. The church is this place where the world is supposed to look and to see 
what it means to be loved by God. That is why we're to display these characteristics. So let me ask you a question. Chesington Evangelical Church. When, the, when non-believers, when outsiders come into our community, do they see a church filled with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one with one another in love, and forgiving as the Lord forgave us? Is that what our children see in our lives? Is that what we, we demonstrate in our life groups? Because that's what it's supposed to be about. We are supposed to, to show off Christ to the world by loving each other in the same way that he loved us. So we need to know that we are loved by Christ in a secure love. We need to know that we are clothed by Christ. And finally, we need to know that we um, are ruled by Christ. You know, a community centered on Christ struggles for peace together. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. You know, at first glance, that seems rather nice, doesn't it? Let me just say those words again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Kind of sounds like a hippie slogan, doesn't it? You can imagine it flower power. You have the peace of Christ, man. It's, it, it's ruling me. You know, it kind of has that kind of, you know, all I need to do is just kind of sit back and let it happen. And, you know, I'm letting the peace of Christ rule me, man. Yeah, that's what, that's what it sounds like. But actually, when you look deeper, that's not really what's going on here. This isn't a nice, cozy little phrase. Look at it, look at it again. Let the priests of Christ, beautiful, rule, rule in your hearts. Rule is not a nice little cozy word. It's to rule you. It's to control you. It's to have its way in your life, not your way, not my way. What does that mean? Well, he's saying, look, as Christ has called us to, to peace, to be a body, we were called to peace. He, the king of the universe, Christ, the one who we were reading about just a few weeks ago, the one who, for, for who, for, by whom created all things and for whom all things were created, says to us as a church, live at peace. Live in peace. It's, a, not just, it's not just a suggestion, it's a command. What does that mean? Well, that means that when the annoying Pastor Ben comes to your house again, and he knocks over your glasses again, and when things go wrong again, and he just winds you up, and you just don't want to hang out with him anymore, you know, and, and you just think, you know, you know what, I've had enough of him. Every, nobody will mind the fact that I don't want to spend any time with this guy because he's so annoying and so frustrating. What you want should not rule what happens. Christ, what Christ said, what Christ's will trumps your will. Because his rule always trumps your rule. You're to let his rule, his peace, rule your life. Not peace the way you want it, the way peace, the, the, way, the, the peace that he has called us to be in the way that we were looking at earlier on. And to be ruled by Christ as a community is not an easy peace. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's making war with our sinful desires, putting them to death, 
and consciously remembering over and over again to clothe ourselves with the virtues of heaven and making sure Christ is ruling in our hearts and at the center of our community. And Paul continues in in verse 16. He says, So let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. The message of Christ must dwell among you richly. The message of Christ, well, well, that's the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news about Jesus, that he has done everything for us that we might be made right with God. And we trust him with him, and we share in everything that rightfully belongs to him because of all that he has done. He died on a cross. He rose so that we could be united with Christ forever. That's the gospel. And Paul is saying to the Colossians and to us that this message needs to be right at the heart and the center of everything we do in our Christian community. Let it dwell among you richly. Go on about it. Keep going on about it. Talk about it regularly. Encourage one another in the gospel. You were lost and dead in your sins. You were cut off, alienated from God. You were rebels, destined for eternal hell. And Jesus has saved you. And he saved me. Don't get bored about it. Don't think this is last week's theme for the message and we need a new one this week. This is the theme. This is the center of everything that we talk about. This is, this is it all. This is, the, this is what we need to sing about. This is what we need to sing the old, old hymns for, to remind us of this truth. This is what we need to write new songs for, to keep singing about this and to not stop singing. We need to sing about this subject every single week. You know, why, why come to church twice on Sunday? Why go to life group or hub? Why then gather for prayer meetings? Why then meet with people one-to-one to read the Bible and pray? I mean, there's so much crammed into life already, isn't there? Why do we need to do these things? Why, have a church, why as a church have we set these things up? Why do we pray together? Why? Because this message, the message of Jesus, is not one you will hear in the world. It's not one that you'll be told about out there. You won't hear about it anywhere else but in Christian community. And we need it. We desperately need it. We need to continuously be reminded of this as much as possible so that we can live this life out in the world. We need to, 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 to make Christ and his message, the gospel, the center of all these different gatherings that we've talked about. And we need to, to attend them regularly to keep ourselves focused on what it's all about. We need to let the message of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach one another as we admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Keep on going on about it. And then in in verse 17, Paul says this, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, Make all you do about Christ in his name. Everything you say, everything you do. It should be all about him and his gospel, because it's simply that good. He is simply that good. It's all about him. It's not about me, and it's not about us. It's not about you. It's all about him. All things have been created through him and for him. Nothing else will last. All the other things that we were worried about that have nothing to do with the gospel, they won't last. Only he will last, and all we do for him will last. John Piper puts it this way, either all is about Christ, or it's all about nothing. What we do for Christ will will last forever. What we do not for him will just fade away. 
know, when we know in the gospel that we're amazingly loved by Christ, gloriously clothed in wonderful garments, and we make and we strive every effort to ensure that Christ's message is at the center of our community, that that message rules us, then we will be marked by thankfulness. And did you spot that in the reading? There's that phrase. It's a refrain in verse, the end of verse 15, and be thankful. The end of verse 16, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And the end of verse 17, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him, through Jesus. How else could we respond to such a wonderful message of love, grace, power, forgiveness, hope, and eternity? Let's pray as we end with thankfulness. Father God, we we just come before you and we are at awe. We are at awe at the work of of, of your son for us, at just what he has done for us, at just what he has won for us, at just what he has given us, that he would give us freely and utterly forgiveness, new life, eternity in heaven, and that we would be united with him, that we would be crowned and, and one day glorified in him. It's just beyond our understanding. Well, Lord, that is who we truly are. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would, would marvel more and more at the wonder of this glorious message in the gospel. Not that we would just be forgiven, Lord, that, that is just awesome in itself, but that we would be reconciled and made right with you, put in perfect relationship and made holy. And Lord, life is hard and we struggle. Lord, we, but we want to be holy. Lord, I pray that you would be working in us, that this gospel would grow in us, Lord, that we would know day and day that we'd encourage one another over and over again in this wonderful love that you have shown to your people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to, to consciously, every day, put on Christ. To put on the clothes that he gave us the day we accepted the gospel. And it would live a life that that shows the world just how loved we are by you. And we pray, Lord, that this message would be at the center of our church, of all our gatherings, and at the very center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.